1: Welcome to Wind's Howling, a companion podcast to The Witcher TV show on Netflix. We'll be diving deep into each episode of the show and exploring the larger context of the story from the games and novels. I'm Brett. And I'm Abu. All right, are you ready to go to a banquet?
2: I am. I am so—I've been waiting for this banquet all season long, Brett. So let's start off with a recap as we do every episode, and then we'll dive into our three key moments— and then we'll wrap up with our big picture final thoughts. Do you want to start off the recap for us?
1: All right, let's do it. We pick up right where episode two left off with Siri entering Brookalon Forest. She's been separated from Dara and runs into the Dryads, a group of women clad in mossy green clothing, spears in hand. The queen of the Dryads arrives and tells Siri to follow her.
2: Yaskir takes notes as a man covered in blood, recounts the tale of Geralt's battle with a The man claims it swallowed Geralt whole, but Yaskier isn't concerned. Right on cue, Geralt enters, covered head to toe in Selkemore guts to claim his reward. Everyone bursts out in song, proving once and for all that toss a coin to your Witcher deserves its number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100.
1: But I will say there might be a song we get a snippet of later on that might take my number one spot. (laughs) That's true. I hard cut to Geralt in a bath, as Yaskir helps him wipe the Selkamor grime off, Yaskir asks Geralt to attend a ball with him as his bodyguard. And why does he need a bodyguard at a harmless ball? Well, it turns out a number of lords want Yaskir dead for sleeping with their wives, concubines, or mothers, perhaps.
2: Geralt is recognized at the ball by Mousesack the moment he arrives at the Cintra court. Mausak delivers some much-needed exposition and tells Geralt that all these lords and their sons are here in the hopes of being chosen to be young Princess Pavetta's husband, and more importantly, the future king of Sintra.
1: After Geralt saves Yaskir from a threatening lord and ruins his courtly reputation in the process, Queen Kalantha makes a grand entrance in full armor, bloodied from head to toe. In hushed tones, she tells a teary-eyed Pavetta to keep herself in check, and agree to the wedding with Krakon Krait as Calanthe has planned.
2: The Queen of the Dryads tells Siri and Dara that all who enter the forest must drink from the waters of Brocolon. If they intend to harm the forest, the waters will kill them. If they are true of heart, they will be allowed to remain in the forest as the water slowly erases all memory of their past lives. Siri reveals who she is to Dara and learns that Calanthe ordered the death of Dara's family.
1: Back at the banquet, Geralt catches the eyes of Calantha and is invited to sit next to her at the head table. The banquet is interrupted by the sudden arrival of Lord Urcheon of Erlenwald, a cursed knight claiming the law of surprise for Pavetta. Calantha orders him killed and chaos erupts. Geralt jumps into the fray and defends Urcheon, before Calantha herself grabs a sword and brings an end to the fighting.
2: It's been 30 years since we last saw Yennefer and we join her now as she escorts Queen Callus and her newborn baby. Their caravan is attacked by an assassin and Yennefer creates portals in a desperate attempt to escape. The assassin tracks them through the portals and Yennefer abandons Queen Callus to her fate. But just as the assassin's giant bug-like creature is about to kill the newborn, Yennefer returns. The assassin manages to throw a knife at the child just as Yennefer portals it away.
1: In Centra, we learn Pavetta was promised to Urcheon after he saved her father's life. The two were destined to meet, and in fact, are already deeply in love. Ice and Mausak plead with Calantha to honor the Law of Surprise and accept destiny. Calantha seemingly agrees to allow Pavetta and Urcheon to marry, but instead tries to stab him. Pavetta
2: screams and unleashes her immense, chaotic power, blowing everyone in the hall back. As Pavetta and Urcheon float in the center of the hall, Geralt hits them with an ard, ending the wild hurricane of power erupting from her. Calanthe admits her mistake and allows Pavetta and Urcheon to marry. Iced in the flex of the decade, announces that Calanthe has agreed to his proposal of marriage.
1: In Brokilon, Siri drinks the waters and, well, nothing happens. On a beach, Yennefer buries the dead child after a soliloquy about the challenges women face in a man's world.
2: We're gonna touch on that a lot this episode, big theme. In the hall at Sintra, Pavetta and Urcheon are married, fulfilling destiny and lifting his curse. Urcheon insists that Geralt accept some sort of payment for saving his life. Geralt, with just the faintest hint of mockery in his voice, claims the law of surprise. Just as he turns to leave, Pavetta vomits. Turns out she's pregnant, and the surprise waiting for Urcheon is a child. The very same child Geralt has just now claimed.
1: The episode fast forwards to the Burning of Cintra, where the Nilfgaardian sorceress Fringilla tracks Ciri through a ridiculously gratuitous ritual and learns that she is in Brokilon. In the forest, the Queen of the Dryads has Ciri drink from the source of their sacred water. Ciri has a vision of a glowing tree in a desert And a voice asks, what are you, child, as we cut to black? So much to unpack in this episode. Yeah, that was a summary right there. So much going
2: on here. Yeah, I I think that was the longest summary we've had to do
1: yet. People (laughs) didn't even need to watch the episode. We just covered it all. We did. We did. I tried to keep those
2: summaries short, but I just, there's so much stuff I don't want to miss. But uh, yeah, yeah, so much happening in this episode that we got to cover. And I think we have to start as we transition here into our three key moments. It was. As it has been every episode so far, it was extremely hard to pick three key moments from this episode, but we got to just start with a banquet. I think the banquet itself is the story being told in this episode. It's the central story, and we just have to, we got to break it down. We got to dive into it because there's so much to unpack here. What part of the banquet stood out to you initially on first viewing?
1: What stood out to me, um, again, was the fishmonger's daughter, (laughs) <laughs> I explained uh, <laughs> that song. That song is, at, when it, for I was like, oh man, I like, because the jig, like, when Calanthe first gets there, she's like, play some music, and Yaskier starts playing this slow, and she's like, no, 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 a jig, you know, save the bloody modeling nonsense from the funeral, and she gets really almost like low class there, <laughs> she says that, I like how she delivered that line. Yeah. And so then it gets like the jig, the lively music. And Yaskier's playing that, and I've seen that video so many times, and I actually use that when I stream, when someone hosts me, that's the song that plays. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, it's just, I mean, you talk about a banger, that one is for me, because I like (laughs) nonsensical, just dumb, like minstrel, not even like medieval, that's almost like Renaissance stuff there. But the way that just hits, oh, that stood out for me the most. But on a serious note, what did stand out to me was just Dunny's Arrival.
2: So good. Urcheon's entrance was spectacular, and I think the setup for this episode, if we can back up a little bit, the setup for this episode was a little different, right, from the books. Like, this is a big change from the books. In the novels, Geralt is there because he's been hired by Calanthe. She brings him to the banquet for a purpose, and later on we learn that purpose was because she knew that Urcheon was going to potentially show up. To claim the law of surprise. She already knew about that. And she wanted Geralt there in an attempt to effectively block Urcheon to kill him if he needed to.
1: Yeah, and he's there not as a as Geralt. He's there as Lord Ravix of Fourhorn. And right. you know, his cover isn't like blown immediately. Massek doesn't exclaim to everybody, Hey everybody, it's hey! the White Wolf, <laughs> Geralt of Rivia, the famous Witcher, as he explains so astutely. So yeah, that setup was uh that setup was very different. Did you like that
2: change? Because I actually really liked that change of having Yaskier be the reason that Geralt is there. I, I think it was a lot more fun and we got to get more Yaskier Geralt interactions, right? Like the bathtub scene, hilarious, iconic.
1: Yeah, there was otherwise there was no like in the books, there was no reason for him to be there. So this is a way to get Yaskier in there. And again, to me, like have that levity of have him in there, the bathtub scene. He explains all that, and it was hilarious in the bathtub scene, as Geralt's like, ah, these folly of men, I'm not choosing a side in there. I'm not getting involved. And Yasker's like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) but you always do get involved. You always do. Geralt looks back like, what? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I do, don't I? So that was a funny thing. Another wink, I think, too, just the bullshit line of the bullshit evil is evil line, I'd rather not choose at all. The dude chooses, and Yasker's here telling us, yeah, he does choose.
2: Yeah, he gets immediately recognized. Calanthe is like, whoa, aren't you Geralt of Rivia, the famous witcher? Come up here and sit next to me. <laughs> so yeah, inevitably, just as Yaskir said, he ends up getting involved even when he doesn't want to. But I think the setup was great. We got some more hilarious Yaskir moments. Uh, and we got some amazing, amazing lines of dialogue regarding where Yaskir is uh, putting his bacon. So there was a lot of A lot of sort of levity leading up to what is ultimately like a pretty intense episode. Now, once Geralt is up there sitting with Calanthe, we get sort of our, we get sort of the first line in the episode that clues us in on what the big theme of this episode is, right? Calanthe turns to Geralt at one point after she complains about how she hates balls and formality and she'd much rather be on a battlefield than in a dress, and she turns to Geralt and she says, quote, all this because male tradition demands it. If she had her way, she would just declare who Pavetta is to marry, be done with it, not go through all this tradition bullshit. Or she would just let Pavetta decide who she wants to marry. And I think that really encapsulates what this episode is about. This episode, at its core, is about the people that suffer in a man's world, women Elves, dwarves, and dryads in particular in this episode. Everyone who's not a human male suffers in this episode. And I think that is sort of the through line throughout the entire uh, episode from start to finish.
1: Yeah. And even though she's the queen in a despotic, complete despotic ki- uh, kingdom at that, she still can't change too many things. Because that's the thing you might think of is you're the queen. You can just say, hey, I'm the queen. This is my kingdom this is how we're going to do things. But again, you can't really get into that. But obviously she's like, I'm going to change all this stuff here. The people under her will be like, no, we're not going to allow that. So even that way, and I do like, when talking to Law Surprise, she says, I bow to no man. I bow to no law made by men who never bore a child.
2: Yes, such a good line.
1: It is such a good line because it's basically saying, like, we're the women, we kind of produce the life, you know, or we put it out. But the men kind of control everything in there. And so it's kind of her raging against that machine that she's honestly a part of. And she could change some of it. You know, that has happened before. But at the same time, she kind of just acquiesces to the tradition.
2: Yeah. And think about that for a second. Calanthe is such a headstrong, powerful woman, right? She's a queen. She's the only leader left in Sintra because her husband King Rognar is dead, and she still is bound by these laws and traditions that were set forth by man. When Urcheon enters and he claims the law of surprise, everyone in the hall, Moussack, Iced, everyone pleads with her and tells her, Hey, this is the rule. You have to follow the law, this is destiny and that's where Kalanthi just is like I will I won't follow a law set by men. You know, like it, it Even the law of surprise itself is sort of a tradition set forth by men. It just, it's very obvious that the patriarchal society that the Witcher exists in is something that Calanthe consistently fights against and is also bound by and held back by. And it's incredible to think how powerful a woman Calanthe is, and she still can't overcome that hurdle.
1: But to me, that's another reason why she disliked the law of surprise because it took away her power. She's the one who made this betrothal with Skellige to do it, and that was her power and her right as a queen. And someone coming in and invoking the law of surprise takes away that power. So I almost looked at it as where, okay, she probably did have some of it as, oh, no, I can't say who my daughter's going to marry. But I look at that more of her being a queen and it being taking away her royal, almost divine right power in that sense.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're spot on with that. I do want to back up a second. We've mentioned the Law of Surprise a couple of times now, and this is a new concept for show watchers. So do you want to just briefly give us the Law of Surprise 101 explanation on what it is and why it's so important and why everyone in this banquet hall suddenly starts pleading with Calanthe to go through with it?
1: So, so the Law of Surprise is basically somebody helps somebody out Say, saves their life. In this case, it was King Regnar who was injured and wolves were about to attack him. And then Urcheon came upon him, saved his life, and the king was like, Oh, here's a law of surprise. I will give you whatever it is back at home that I was not expecting or I did not know about.
2: Right. And now Urcheon, in this scene where he enters, claims the law of surprise. Pavetta has come of age, she is to be wed, and he has come and returned. To claim this promise from King Rognar. He's come to take Pavetta's hand in marriage. And the thing in the Witcher universe, the Law of Surprise does that's more important, and I think extremely important in this episode in particular, is that it ties these two people's destinies together. And that's extremely clear to us when Pavetta runs up and tells Urcheon, I told you not to come close. And then she kisses him, and it suddenly dawns on Calanthe, it suddenly dawns on the viewer that Pavetta and Urchion know each other. They have a past. They're already in love. Despite him staying away from Sintra because of this curse that he has, he has stayed away in an attempt to protect Pavetta, but they have still managed to fall in love. Destiny has brought them together regardless, and they are now deeply and madly in love with each other. And I think that is extremely important and sets up a huge, huge connection between Geralt and Ciri.
1: It also sets up that with the law of surprise and all that, the person who got surprised, (laughs) the recipient recipient, if you will, in this case like Pavetta, she can choose it. She can say no. Like she doesn't Urchin doesn't own her and she does not have to just go with him and do it. She has to choose him as well. And she does. And again, that's another thing of showing that this law of surprise isn't oh, I get to control whatever it is, that they do have some agency in in their own destiny as well.
2: Yes. Yeah, the two have fallen in love, and uh, destiny may have brought them together, but they both had the choice of uh, falling in love and being together, and that's what they chose to do. Obviously, not to Calanthe's liking, and her outburst here is very much in keeping with, like you said, her need to retain control and power in a world dominated by men, and in a world where she, as a woman, will never quite have as much power as her male counterparts might, um, she turns to the crowd at this point and says, "Do none of you in the none of you assembled here not fear destiny? Are all of you going to bow to this law of surprise? Am I the only one that's going to stand up and refuse to follow destiny and allow this marriage to happen?" And she turns to Geralt, knowing full well that Geralt doesn't. Believe in destiny. And in a scene just dripping with irony, it was so juicy and fun to watch this. Geralt says, and I'm going to quote him here he says, Destiny helps people believe there's an order to this horseshit. There isn't. End quote. That's amazing. That was such a good line in this episode because it's just so ironic, and it's gonna bite Geralt in the ass in literally like a couple of minutes here. It's like that <laughs>
1: shit eating grin though. He's like, "There is." Yeah. It. And it's like, "Oh, isn't there? Isn't there, you cocky asshole?"
2: <laughs> yeah, it's so good. This was so juicy, and I I enjoyed Henry Cavill's delivery here because like he knew he knew what was coming, and it was just just full of irony and uh, such a good line. But again, it makes clear that Geralt is not our protagonist, our all-knowing protagonist who can do no wrong. In fact, he's extremely flawed. He, some of his beliefs are extremely flawed. And right now, this younger Geralt doesn't believe in destiny at all. And in fact, scoffs at destiny. And that ultimately will, uh, will come back to haunt him for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah, at the end when Mousesack, when it's all said and done and Geralt's like, all right, I'm out of here. And Moussack meets him in the hallway. He's like pleading this impassioned speech of, you're tied together. You will unleash calamity upon us all. And Geralt's like, eh, I'll take that risk.
2: Right. T- take care of yourself, <laughs> Uh
1: Don't get stabbed or poisoned. Uh, peace. <laughs> that's it. Moussack's like, oh, shit. Right. Poured my heart out here, and he just shit all over it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. And at first, you know, like that scene, I think, was uh, a clip of that scene was played in the trailer where he says, yeah. you will bring calamity on us all. And then Geralt's response is, well, I'll take that chance. That I'll scene in the trailer chance. is played <laughs> off as like Geralt being badass. But in the context of this episode and in the context of Geralt's future with Ciri... We know that he's about to eat shit for saying that, (laughs) like that (laughs) he is not being badass here at all. He thinks he's being badass, but, uh, he is eventually going to succumb to destiny. And that's actually one last thing I wanted to say about this banquet scene and the themes in this episode throughout, I think another part of this episode, in addition to exploring this idea of, uh, power in a man's world The second goal of this episode was to really explain to the viewer, especially to show watchers who may not have already known what's to come from the books and games, that destiny in this world is powerful. And in some cases, it ultimately cannot be stopped, right? Urcheon was destined to meet Pavetta. What they did with that was up to them. They had agency when it came to falling in love with each other. But meeting each other, that was destined from the moment King Ragnar promised Urcheon the law of surprise. And I think this episode continues, even in series Brokilon scenes, even in Yennefer scene. It hammers this point home, that in the world of The Witcher, the law of surprise is sacred, destiny is sacred, and no matter what you do, destiny will find you. Take a shot every time I said destiny in the last five minutes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you've heard it enough with the show there, so we're just <laughs> we're giving you what you want. All right, we're going to keep this conversation going, but first, a quick break. We
0: interrupt this podcast for a preview for a different podcast. I'm Bruce, a regular contributor to Lore Party. In the unforgiving world of the gods, there is an endless, vicious cycle of fathers killing sons, brothers killing brothers, and sons killing mothers. But Kratos, the ghost of Sparta, looks to end that cycle with his son Atreus, as they journey through the various realms of the Norse pantheon. Tune in to our God of War episodes where my co-host Abu and I discuss the latest installment in the God of War series from 2018 and the insightful ways the game creates more depth in a beloved franchise. Just check out our Lore Party feed and search God of War. It should be easy to find. We now continue your regularly scheduled podcast.
2: So let's move on to series adventure and Brokilon, because this is quite controversial. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that. Like, I think this is one of the biggest critiques against the show, now that the show is out.
1: Biggest critique from, like, book readers, because if you don't yes. know the books, you don't really give a shit. You don't know anything.
2: Exactly, yeah. And I think um, this is something we'll revisit once we complete this season, because the critique here only really makes sense in the context of what happens at the very end of the show. And we don't want to get into that right now. I but we should say end of
1: the season, right?
2: Yes, end of the season, correct. So we don't want to get into that too much right now, but there is a big change from the Brocolon scene uh, in the novels and what the show portrays. Uh, I think the extent of what I can basically say without being too spoilery about the end of the season is that in the novels... In Brokalan, Siri and Geralt actually meet each other.
1: And before the fall of, before the slaughter of Cintra.
2: Correct. Yeah. Cintra hasn't fallen yet. Geralt and Siri meet. And then uh, ultimately they separate and go their separate ways. That doesn't obviously happen in the TV show. In the TV show, Siri is with Dara. She meets the Dryads. She goes through this little bit with the water. and uh, And then we'll see what happens in the next episode. So, quite a significant change. And again, at the end of the season, in the last episode, this affects one of the scenes in the last episode, so we will talk about this more in depth when we get there. I did want to ask you what, what you thought about this Brocolon sequence in general, because I have some mixed feelings about it.
1: Yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of mixed feelings just about series story in general, like storyline yeah, for the whole same. season. I know they had to introduce her so we could see her and get a feel for her. But a lot of times it kind of just felt like she was meandering and it, she was there kind of just to be like, hey, remember her and we've got it in here. And with the brokelon here, with the waters and all that, even though we already knew it, it's just more confirmed that she's special or unique as even the dryads are like, whoa, this water is not doing anything to you. It's supposed to do all this. So it's just kind of, like I said, I, I don't dislike it, but I don't really like it. It's just kind of there.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like, I just, I don't really know how to feel about the whole Siri situation in the show. I just, I don't know. I just think, like you said, the Siri plotline ever since the fall of Sintra has not gone anywhere in the past couple episodes. Like, she goes to this camp, the camp's burns down, her and Dara run off again, so... We learn a little bit at the camp. Of course, we get some world building, but there's no see, that's progression exactly for the story. Is.
1: I'd say it's more about the world as opposed it is to Siri. I mean, we do see Siri out there on her own, realizing, "Hey, you're not some pampered princess anymore." And it is kind of go play into later where her being on her own is such a big thing. And I won't speak any more of that. And it's yeah, another and, reason and why see, Dara. That, that
2: right there is that right there. I think is the problem. Is all of this is like setting up stuff and world building for later. Which makes the now really uninteresting. Like, you and I keep having to tiptoe around, like, oh, this something will come of this later. But there's, like, not much to talk about now. Because, like, nothing is really happening now. The main
1: thing to take away is she's struggling. And right now she's just struggling.
2: Right. And I think what I will say about this scene, and I think what this scene achieves for us, this Brocolon scene and the water scene with Siri is again, like you said, reinforcing that she is special, that she has some sort of powers. And more thematically, again, it reinforces that destiny won't be stopped. That she can drink this water, but Geralt and Ciri are destined to meet each other because of this law of surprise that we saw happen at the end of the banquet. We know that Calanthe told Ciri, find Geralt, find your destiny. And she can drink the water, she may have that vision, but she's not about to lose her memory like Dara will because he drank the water. She still has to find Geralt. She is destined to find Geralt. And no sacred water, no outside force will stop that moment from happening. And I think that is really reinforced in this scene. But beyond that, I agree, not not much going on in this episode. Um, I don't know, this might be even more controversial, but I feel like they could have lost the entire Brokilon section. I don't think we really... Gain much from Brocolon, like if there wasn't enough time in the TV show to explore it and do it justice, like do the Dryads justice, do the scenes in Brocolon justice. I I just don't understand why they didn't cut it. I feel like we could have spent more th- thorough time at the banquet and had more time with potentially Yennefer backstory instead of this sort of a series side adventure is what it was to me.
1: Yeah, I can't. I can't think of anything new that came up. Like I said it was just the reinforcement. They have the at the very end the speaking tree and her out in the desert which brought up a weird thing that could potentially happen. But I think it just goes reinforce that she's incredibly special. I also think it plays into her confusion cuz she knows now that And she knew from the beginning, the, the Guardians attack Sentra because of her. They want her. And she doesn't know why. And no one tells her why. And she can't figure out why. But she goes to this forest, she drinks this water, and they're like, oh my God, that's crazy. Here, drink from our special tree. And then she goes up to this. So I think it's playing into her confusion and of frustration that she just doesn't know what's going on. She's special, but she doesn't know why all this stuff is happening. And all this bad stuff is happening around her, and it's because of her. Yeah,
2: that's a good point, actually. I hadn't considered that. Okay, so let's move on to Yennefer, because we do get a little bit of Yennefer in this episode as well. And it's been a couple of decades since we last saw Yennefer, and she is different. She's definitely much more bitter. Would you agree? Like, these past 30 years have not been nice to her. She did not get what she expected to get as a powerful sorceress holding court with powerful kings.
1: Yeah, she got what she wanted, that the court life and the influence, if you will, but it ain't nothing really happening. And she's almost babysitting. Mm-hmm. Well, that might be a bad term. <laughs> oh yeah. At, whoops. <laughs> uh, Freudian slip, I guess, or... <laughs> Um, Yeah, bad term. Yeah, bad Um, term there.
2: (laughs) But yeah, she she's doing stuff with kings that is essentially babysitting these kings, right? She is the life of this like grand, powerful sorceress in these grand halls with these grand kings working on grand designs. Turns out to not be so grand. I think like the reality of her role in the world has hit Yennefer, and it's not as big and as powerful and as important as she sees herself. And I think that's frustrating to her. I think to her, something in her life is missing. Her skills, her power is being underutilized. She wants something more out of her life.
1: Yeah, and I think the main thing she's missing, as she explained in that speech to Istrid, is the power. She wants the power, not just influence, but the actual power of it And there's just nothing there. Main thing, I think, is because there's just nothing really going on at this time. And I guess she could be advising trade routes and all that. But otherwise, she's just with the Queen.
2: Right, right. And again, to orient ourselves in the timeline here, that Nilfgaardian attack on Sintra, the Nilfgaardian invasion, hasn't happened yet where Yennefer is here with Queen Kallus.
1: Yeah, we're several decades before...
2: Exactly. So politically, things are, I mean, I'm sure things are still chaotic politically, but there is no major Nilfgaardian attack quite yet at this point. And Yennefer is lacking some sort, any sort of purpose in her life. And I think she's trying to fill that void any way she can. And we'll learn in future episodes, I don't want to get into it too much here, but we'll learn in future episodes that she starts chasing something to fill this void uh, in her life. That, they, that she thinks will make her happy. And it's something that she can't have. You know, that's a very human trait in a powerful sorceress like Yennefer. She wants the things she can't have. And I think we, we are all guilty of that at some point. And it's unfortunately something that will drive Yennefer to, do, uh, to make some incredibly wild decisions in the next couple episodes.
1: Yeah, she's going to get what she wants. So, when Yen flees with the baby in hand and the assassin dobbies that baby. Oh,
2: dobbies, no.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what. As soon as she goes to that that's portal, exactly they what got happens. those knives. I'm like, they're going to that I'm like, is that baby going to die? And then the baby's <laughs> hit. And I'm like, they just dobbied that baby.
2: No. Like, I'm damn. a huge Harry Potter fan. I can't believe I didn't make that connection.
1: Oh, man. It's like instantly, like the dot, <laughs> it just got dobbied in there. And oh, so, poor baby, yeah. Yeah, and the baby dies. Or she's got the baby on the beach, and as she gives the speech in there, and it very much is about hitting on that like the patriarchal society and all that. But it also hits off that Yen feels for the baby in a sense of Oh, maybe that's what's been missing, or maybe that can be something to give me fulfillment. And I am not opening that can of worms of the powerful woman needing a child to fill fulfills. Yeah, um, I don't that be- feels a bit... I don't believe that's what it is, but I am not approaching that with a 10-foot Witcher pole. <laughs> <laughs> I will leave that to other people because I don't think that's what it is. I really don't. And a lot, again, that a lot comes from the books and all that aspect. And I don't believe that a woman showrunner is going to do that at all. But I yeah, can see no, where I people so. I can see where people who have no background on it can look at it and be like, "Oh man, this woman's a badass." Anyway, that comes a couple episodes in that sense.
2: Right. And this speech, at the end, like you said, it does speak to that to some extent she's talking to this child that she's mar uh she's talking to this child that she's buried on the beach, and the child is a girl, and this is something Queen Callus had mentioned earlier as well. Queen callous is frustrated because she gave birth to yet another girl she hasn't sired an heir for her king she hasn't given birth to a boy, which in the w- world of the witcher is of more value and Again, it reinforces, again, that big through line in this episode, that major theme of this episode, this idea of being a woman in a man's world and how much that affects you and how much you suffer from it, right? This baby didn't get to grow up at all, didn't get to experience any part of her life simply because she was born a girl in a world dominated by men, in a world that values men above all else. And this speech at the end by Yennefer definitely reinforces that theme. Uh, in, in my opinion, it was a, a little like on the nose, <laughs> like he- kind of heavy-handed with the writing here. But I think Anya Chalotra delivered it exceptionally well, and it, it really did eventually land with me. And I think it was, it was a powerful moment, if a little on the nose.
1: Yeah, and I would say that's more, that's more Yennefer than it is... The Witcher, per se. But to hit on this, this is where Yen, without question, she is at her lowest point right here, where her king basically just put an assassin, uh, try to kill the queen, or did kill the queen, try to kill the princess, and then killed his own men transporting them, who you can also assume would be the most loyal of guards outside of the people guarding him. And so she's probably also realizing, man, what is this, asshole... I'm at court with, because it would have been her too. She could have died. She could easily died.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so, she was. Yeah, she was in the crosshairs as well.
1: Yeah. So I think she right now is realizing, man, this sucks. I'm gonna do my own thing from now on, and, and she does her own thing from now on. That ain't even a spoiler right there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's very <laughs> clear sure, that sure. she's you know putting up that middle finger to everybody.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's wrap up this episode with our big picture final thoughts. A couple of notes that I had were about Brocolon, but I think we already basically touched on that, so I won't rehash that too much. But I'm curious about your overall big picture thoughts about this episode, the acting, the cinematography, the story choices. What did you think?
1: It was good. I enjoyed uh, the banquet was really good. I enjoyed how they did it. Pavetta's force... Unleashed. It's no way to get around like the Star Wars thing. They call it like the Force. So, in like, a <laughs> yeah. Force Unleashed, I'm like, wasn't that the name of a game? A Star Wars game. <laughs> it is. Um, you can say the Force Awakens here <laughs> as yeah. well. Uh, so that does that was awesome. The when they blew everybody back, that effect was just phenomenal. Because again, when you read it in the books, it's a fucking maelstrom in there. Silverware is flying everywhere. People are just being thrown and just pressed against the walls. They can't really move. You know, ice does protect Kalantha uh, behind like a table or something like that. And they they, they cut out Kudkudak, uh the guy making all the animal sounds. Yes, who if I'm not Especially mistaken, such a weird
2: thing th- thing from the books.
1: Yeah, it was. Weird, <laughs> but he was, if I'm not mistaken, he defended Urchion and he also was the reason or played a role in distracting Pavetta. Because he did yes. his goofy, burk, 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 you know, did his animal <laughs> sounds. And she's like, what the fuck is that? And then boom, Geralt yeah. and Sack are able to kind of stop her. They did announce William, though. They announced William of Atra. So I'm like, hey, I know that name. Right. <laughs> there wasn't... was a couple of small nods to the
2: royalty in the banquet hall. Yeah,
1: Castellan Haxa, who actually was with, who actually technically kind of hired Geralt on behalf of Calantha, the one who told him, like, ah, you're a lord here and don't fuck around.
2: Right. A, a lot of little Easter eggs for book readers.
1: So, I, I enjoyed that. The look was great. Uh, the fighting, uh, when when Geralt stops that, he looked like almost like a halberd but like that, uh, the big, big, huge two handed axe thing. Yeah, I think it was like a yeah. halberd, something like that pole axe. He stops that and like Dunny grabs it and he gives him that look and it's like, oh yeah, uh, we're, yeah. We're, we're about to fuck shit up. And Dunny just gets <laughs> up like, oh, okay, let's do this. And they start fighting. And then Ice helped them out just like he did in the books uh,
2: what a as brother. well.
1: So uh, I I liked it. The banquet was good. It was funny. You know, you had the Yaskir again. It had the fishmonger's daughter. The banquet ruled.
2: It was great. I, I had
1: a blast the entire time. I liked all the
2: changes they made to it. I liked that Yaskier was the reason that we're there. I liked the funny little moments with Yaskir, and I loved in the moment where all of the lords are like all braggadocious and talking about how they killed a I forget what beast it was, Kikimora or whatever. And they're talking about how it has, like, one wing or two wings, and they turn to Geralt, and they ask him who's right, and he says like, you're both fucking wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> neither of you have clearly ever actually killed one of these beasts before. And then he does a little politicking, and he's he's just like, he massages it over and says, oh well, maybe you saw a rare species that I haven't encountered yet. So there were a lot of just like really funny moments in but the banquet he can't,
1: scene. But he can't just stop there. He has to go with, may you all have a death where you don't shit yourselves. Yes, but may you will will shitless won't. death. Death. yeah, but probably Iconic not. And then, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, banquet scene was incredible. I liked the changes they made from the books. I think they thematically fit the characters that they're building for the TV show, which are slightly different from the books. Um, like I said earlier, I think the Brokilon scene I was pretty iffy about, and I'd much rather they have cut it or changed it significantly rather than keep it as it is now. Uh, And then the Yennefer scenes I think were pretty powerful and poignant, and they really fed into the main theme of this episode.
1: Well, Abu, podcasts are podcasts, lesser, greater middling, they're all the same. But we've completed our contract, and it's time to collect our reward. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the path.